Welcome, everybody, to the Journeyman Fire podcast. Uh, this week, uh, it's back with the three guys, me, Andrew Zisk, and Grant Schwalbe. This week, we are being joined by Jake Hoffman. Um, we're going to talk about a lot of stuff, kind of have our traditional kind of just coffee table talk kind of discussions. And uh, so we're going to go ahead and let Jake introduce himself and talk a little bit about himself. So, uh, Jake, welcome. Thanks a lot. Uh, appreciate you guys having me on here. I know uh, Grant and I are from the same hometown, so uh, got to know Grant pretty well over the past couple of years and uh, saw him when he was up here last month teaching and uh, asked me to come on with you guys and thrilled to be here. So a little bit about myself, uh, a lot like Grant, uh, grew up in Perrysburg, Ohio, suburb of uh, Toledo. I'm originally from the Washington, D.C. area, though, where my uh, dad was a fireman. And uh, so it's kind of been in my blood ever since I was little. Uh, on the way home from the hospital, my parents brought me to my dad's firehouse before I even went home. So I kind of caught the bug early and, uh, and it's stuck with me ever since. So uh, also like Grant, I started out as a uh, fire explorer with the Rossford Fire Department when I was back in high school and uh, just been living, eating, breathing the fire service uh, pretty much my whole life. Uh, first department I got on as a fireman was uh, Perrysburg Township, which uh, where I'm still a firefighter at uh, part-time now and I worked for a couple other suburban departments uh, before getting hired on Toledo. Uh, in Toledo I'm assigned to uh, Station 7 where I ride uh, Rescue Squad 7 and uh, I'm also a member of our HAZMAT and uh, USAR teams for the region. Uh, being on Toledo I've also uh, been an adjunct instructor for our Special Operations Bureau and uh, have gone out and taught uh, two of our recruit classes uh, out at our drill tower. Uh, besides that, um, me and a couple other guys here, we run a little gig called Squad 5 Fire Training. We do a little bit of teaching here and there, uh, pretty much primarily on search, uh, writ, and uh, extrication. And then uh, I've been lucky enough the past two years to uh, teach at FDIC uh, for the Vent Enter Search Hot class with uh, Battalion Chief Eric Dryman and Lieutenant Lauren Twos from the uh, Indianapolis Fire Department. Uh, they brought me on board a couple years ago and uh, very blessed to have the opportunity to teach with those guys uh, in India every year. So, um, like I said, I've kind of been around it my whole life. It's it's all I know. And thank God I found something I'm good at because I'm sure not good at math or science or any of those other things. For the people that don't know, uh, what's a Toledo Rescue Squad? So uh, in Toledo, it's it's a little different than everywhere else. I mean, it's when we say rescue or a squad, it can kind of be used interchangeably, but it's not like the uh, the Florida terminology where you say rescue and it ends up being an ambulance. But uh, for us, it's a it's three men on a rig, uh, no water, um, extrication tools, uh, some various basic technical rescue gear. But uh, we're part of the hazmat complement, but also um, very differently from what most other cities do is our rescue squads are basically uh we just get used and abused so uh in the city of toledo we have about three hundred thousand people give or take um got about 550 guys on the job there's 110 duty guys on duty every day uh it's for 17 engines two heavy rescues uh three truck companies is all we got right now and a bunch of ambulances so since we have so few engines, but uh, we go to quite a few fires, the uh, thought process has always been that you send the squad uh, first up on EMS runs rather than the engine so you can keep the water in service. So uh, we, we make a lot of EMS runs, but we also get to go to a lot of fires. So it's a pretty good trade-off. I think uh, last year somebody ran the numbers, and I think they said for every 
I was like every 20 EMS runs we went on, we went to a working fire, the average was something around like that. So I'll, uh, I'll take getting used and abused if it means I get to go to fires. What, uh, now for people that don't know the Toledo, uh, culture, can you talk to that a little bit? You're real close to Detroit, have a lot of the same problems, uh, as they do, but just talk to us a little bit about that culture. Yeah, we're a very traditional fire department. Um, like you said, we're close to Detroit, about 45 minutes or an hour south of there. Uh, a lot of people for one reason or another refer to Toledo as little Detroit. Uh, last count I heard, I think we had somewhere around 20,000 vacants. Uh, in the in the city, and uh, the vast majority of the fires that we go to are in vacant dwellings. Um, kind of again, much like Detroit, we uh, we just get it done with what we've got. Um, for a lot of lean years, uh, especially with the recession and everything else. And Toledo's kind of starting to to come around. We got some companies moving downtown or whatever else. But uh, the reality is, once you get out into the neighborhoods, out of the inner city, or from the downtown out into some of those inner city neighborhoods. Uh, nothing's really changed since since 2006 or 2008. So uh, definitely a very very aggressive culture as far as getting inside uh, whenever we can, whether it's vacant, uh, appears vacant, or whether it's uh, reported to be occupied. We're doing whatever we can to get inside there as quick as we can. Um, our normal our normal uh, complement for a structure fire is typically going to be three or four engines, one truck. Uh, one rescue squad if it's available and close, uh, a couple ambulances, a chief and a safety officer. Um, so the engine work, I mean, that's that's pretty much similar as it is everywhere. I mean, you're, you're taking a line in the front door, you're getting water supply, you're doing that kind of stuff, backup line. Uh, the squad, we're typically assigned one or two things. We're either assigned assist attack or search. So for in Toledo, being assigned assist attack basically just means, hey, help get that line in place. So that could be uh, force in the front door that could be pulling boards off windows that could be just helping feed some line and then once that line's in place you can kind of break off and do whatever you need to do typically it evolves into a search or maybe you'll end up in the attic checking the basement something like that um, and then search is is pretty self-explanatory um, and there's only three of us so the officer and the driver or the officer in the back step will uh, get out and pretty and uh, pretty much just run right out to the house uh, being on the squad will typically park uh, in somebody's yard or we'll park down the street or on a cross street. So we're not jamming up the scene. Um, and the officer will get dressed or excuse me, the driver will get dressed while the officer in the back step or are going up there and starting to search or starting to assist attack. And, uh, by the time the driver gets dressed, uh, typically they'll, they'll come up if there's bars that need taken off windows or doors forced. that driver will get those before he gets in. Uh, typically that driver is going to go check the basement if nobody's else has checked the basement and then, uh, meet up with the rest of his crew. Uh, typically on the squad, it's uh, it's kind of a glory assignment sometimes because we only really go through one bottle at most fires and then they put us in service. So we're not really overhauling very much. We're not really uh, packing any lines. We'll pretty much do a search, do whatever needs to get done until that until we're done with that first bottle, come on out and the chief puts us in service. So the benefit of that is we don't have to stick around and do any of that, especially in the, uh, the cold months like now. But uh, the downfall to that is now our EMS district just got massive and we're taking runs for four or five different engine companies uh, in addition to our normal first two areas. So it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. Uh, the crew I've got is, is absolutely fantastic. I mean, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't ask for a better crew or a better house. Uh, Station 7 where I'm at is uh, a legendary in our, uh, in our department. I mean, 
just about anybody who's a good firefighter at some point has come through uh, Station 7. Uh, they, I don't remember who said this, but uh, somebody told me that once you get a good crew together, it's not really even like a family. You just kind of become a gang. And uh, I think that's about the truest statement that I've heard uh, when it refers to having a crew at the firehouse. Um, I mean, we put sevens on everything. It's, it's literally like a gang tagging stuff. We'll put, we'll slap seven stickers on, on just about anything we can get our hands on. Um, station seven has been at uh, the same intersection at Bancroft and Franklin uh, in uh, the old West end of Toledo for 147 years, I think um, two stations over that time. And uh, like I said, I mean, we're like a gang, we, we mark up everything. So a couple of years ago, we took an assessment and uh, every, every guy assigned to sevens paid 30 extra dollars. And uh, that let us buy a four by eight sheet of stainless steel that we had uh, CNC'd into a massive seven and uh, bolted it on the front of the firehouse about 25 feet off the ground. And then also paid uh, to put slap big seven on the back of the squad as well. So try to uh, try to have as much pride as possible. I mean, we're spray painting stenciled sevens on the back of our coats and whatever. And, uh, everybody knows who's coming up when we, uh, when we get there. So not necessarily cocky, just, uh, confident and, uh, and proud of the heritage of all the guys that have come before us at station seven. So I, uh, originally, you know, I grew up in Toledo and I got the, got the benefit to learn from some of the, uh, from the chiefs of Toledo. And, and that's where I kind of got my desire for the search culture uh chief coleman chief cunnysecker all taught over at, at the time it was owens i don't know if it's still called owens um but having been on a smaller department where we only had the senior guys were maybe they were the only guy on duty for a number of their years they didn't have a whole lot to pass on um so i definitely appreciate all that those chiefs passed on to us as students because they were going to jobs all the time. Can you speak to how that culture gets passed down and what's, what's your average age at sevens, uh, age on the job? Uh, at sevens, um, my shift is actually the youngest shift uh, out of all three at sevens. And uh, as far as privates go, I think the average age or average time on the job for privates uh, at sevens is probably about probably seven or eight years uh, on the job. Now, uh, a shift is the most senior shift at sevens and uh, the, the newest guy on seven uh, a has been on the job for eight years and the old and most of them have been at sevens for at least 20 years, been on the job 25 or 30 years. So seven uh, a, that crew is very tight. They've been together for 15, 20, 25 years um, making the same runs, going to the same spots and, and really getting along. It's working with seven a is a lot of fun. But uh, I think what helps us is, uh, like I said, we're kind of very traditional and, and nobody ever wants to get awards or accolades for doing their job, right? I mean, we know that fire department is, you get firefighter of the year and, and it's, it's more of a hassle from your crew. Oh, hey, you're the fireman of the year. You're not, uh, you're not so good around here. And just uh, the normal razzing that the fire service has. But luckily for us, I mean, we're busy enough and, uh, and there's enough history there and, and they don't really give out awards very often in Toledo. So when they do, it's typically something pretty cool. And uh, so we have a lot of, a lot of good senior guys to learn from. And, and uh, if anybody works in the inner city of Toledo for very long, uh, I don't know anybody that works in the inner city that doesn't have a save from a house fire. Um, I mean, it just happens, seems to happen quite often for us. Um, and so really from when you're, when you start out in drill school, 
day one of the academy, I mean, we're stressing, hey, look, we're here for them. We have to, we have to do whatever it is that we can to uh, affect rescues, whether this structure appears vacant or mom's out front saying that her kids are trapped inside. And um, so part of that, I think, starts with the people that get assigned to the training bureau for our academy classes. Um, we have a very small uh, full-time training cadre. Uh, so it's typically a chief, a couple officers, and a couple training officers that uh, they do continuing training and such. And then when we go to hire a class, um, classes for us typically over the past 10 years or so have been anywhere from 40 to 55 people. So they need to bring in a good influx of, of instructors from the line. And uh, again, typically those are all inner city firefighters, uh, guys with some good experience that, uh, that use the book. We have to use the book to uh, teach to the state test, but uh, we're sure to delineate that. We're like, hey, look, this is the crap you need to know for the test. This is how we're really doing it in Toledo. And this isn't just a story from a book. Let me tell you about this time that we pulled three kids out of this house fire or whatever. And I think that really goes a long way to establish that culture that, hey, look, we're going in, we're getting people out. Um, and, and basically just letting people know, hey, look, this is our number one priority. When I was up there last month, you talked, uh, we talked about uh, getting down low, initially when we go inside looking for life fire layout and you had a story that you, you told me that you know the in your drill school they they hit that on you but but it actually uh helped out what can you tell us about that story yeah and uh so that it wasn't necessarily it, it wasn't uh, packaged as sexy as all oh, life fire layout um in toledo for whatever reason if somebody comes up with an idea it typically gets named after them so one of our guys who's now a chief uh about 10 years ago convince the department to issue everybody webbing and a carabiner in their pocket for, for self-rescue, for victim rescue, for what have you, but convince the department to purchase those. So now pretty much universally across our department, those are known as a Brixie bundle. And uh, so when we were going through the academy, uh, one of the chiefs who had just retired, who was actually at sevens for most of his career, his name was Dave Fote. And uh, this guy also just a legendary firefighter, legendary officer on our job. And, uh, what he always taught guys was to do what he called the quick look. So we just, in Toledo, it's just called the FOAT quick look. And that's basically putting your face piece on the floor and checking for light, fire, and layout. Um, if you can, before you open the line, if you're on the nozzle. Um, otherwise, if you're searching, you come in a window, prevent enter search, put your face piece on the floor, get a good look at the room. Or it's just your traditional search. Get that, get your mask down low on the floor and, uh, and see what you're dealing with. So, uh, during my first rotation as a rookie, so as a, as a probationary or a probationary firefighter on the city of Toledo, you do three, four month rotations. So they'll typically move you from battalion to battalion and they're supposed to, in theory, move you from an engine to a truck and then maybe back to an engine or to a squad. So you get varied experience across the city. And so I'd been on the job maybe two months, month or two, and, uh, we get sent to a, uh, high rise apartment, uh, in our first two area where I was at engine three at the time and uh, just came in as a fire alarm. So we get up to, I think the fifth or sixth floor, uh, smells like food on the stove. Uh, we're geared up just like anybody would be for a high rise uh, fire alarm or any fire alarm for that matter. Uh, master key's not working for whatever reason. So we pop the door, uh, smoke rolls out about knee height and all right, this is a little bit more than food on the stove. So instinctively, the first thing I do is just drop to the ground and put my face on the ground 
Um, and when I do that, I'm looking straight ahead to my right is uh, the kitchen of this place and the, the cabinets are on fire and all that's, all that's going pretty good. But when I got on the, my face piece on the floor, there's a couch in the uh, living room about maybe 15 or 20 feet ahead of me. And I see a guy's arm hanging off the couch. So I tell the officer, hey, I mask up. I go in and drag the guy out, throw him in the hallway, and then uh, go back in, end up putting the fire out with the sink sprayer pretty much. And uh, so they knocked down the, uh, the high-rise assignment pretty quickly to just us, a truck, and a, uh, a medic unit for our, uh, our victim who ended up surviving and uh, wasn't really too much worse for the wear. He was just unconscious when we pulled him out. So um, I feel like if I hadn't been – if I hadn't – didn't have that stressed into me, that quick look, like, hey, always get in the habit of popping down below the smoke and seeing what you can see. I think I would have just been, been, uh, I don't know, not necessarily overwhelmed, but I would have been drawn to the fire and been worried about putting the fire out. And then a search would have been secondary. But again, from pretty much from day one in the academy, they, they taught us that anytime you can get your face piece on the floor and, and check that life fire layout. And it happened to work out that day for me as a rookie. And I tell that story to our rookies all the time. I said, look, I've I was on the job a month or two, and this happened in Toledo. It's going to happen to you. We've already had rookies from our last class. They've been on the line about nine months. And uh, last time, last I heard, I think at least four of them have been involved in rescues uh, in the nine months that they've been on the line. So with that many rescues, um, it, it seems like what I've seen, um, for the most part, is when people are making a rescue, it's just, make it happen with your hands and sometimes i think we get caught up in uh instruction through various instructors and, and we give maybe too many options for for drags um you, you want to talk about that a little bit yeah um and I, w I would agree there i know i mean there's a lot of great information and i mean there's the old saying like you can it's another tool for the toolbox well i, I don't know i think the toolbox can can get overstuffed uh because you don't want really people thinking about which option is going to be the best option. You just want them to get this person out. And I think that works really well in Toledo. Um, I would say, like I said, we're traditional and we're a very much a, a blue collar job in Toledo where guys are like, look, I don't give a shit. Oh, sorry. I don't give a crap about uh, having the, the coolest webbing drag or this or that. Like we just got to get this person out. So uh, people know different options for getting our victims out, but I would say the vast majority, at least probably 90% of the time, you're just putting hands on the victim and dragging them out. Uh, sometimes, obviously, goes a little bit better than others. Sometimes you end up just taking them to a window and down a ladder, uh, whatever the case is. But for the most part, it's just hands-on rescues uh, as opposed to webbing or rope or, or anything else. Yeah, it, it, you know, I, I go back to the EMS runs. We don't get a lot of chances to make grabs, but we do make a lot of uh, move victims in – in the EMS runs, you know, mm -hmm. it's the big guy that, that rolls off the bed in cardiac arrest and there's not much room to move. So we're moving him into a big area. And what do we what, fall back to what we do on EMS calls? And it's just grab the legs or grab the head and move them to an area that we need. So it, at least when I break it down, it seems like just have a plan for head first and feet first. Uh, exactly. But, but uh, Joel Whitmore, I used to work with him in Perrysburg. He's the chief of Northwood that brought me up there. Uh, mm -hmm. He told me a story, and I don't know if you guys are still doing it, but um, having uh, – you guys were Crisco oiling up the, the dummies because when, when you get a victim with burns, they become slippery. And then all the methods that we moved people when we could actually get a grip on them don't work anymore. Uh, mm -hmm. You guys still doing that or – uh, yeah, so it's not it's not something that's done all the time, but yeah, it's definitely something that we've done at drills. Um, is 
And so we were using Crisco for a while and people were using like vegetable oil and then they're like, all right, well, this gets on your gear. Does it ever really come out of your gear? So we haven't done it in a while because people are worried about, about getting that crap on their gear, but we've, we've tried to do whatever we can to, to make that a little bit more slippery and a little bit more realistic. Cause I mean, it, just in my experience uh, alone, I mean, typically people are fat, naked and or burn and, uh, and it never really works out too well. And I think that goes to kind of what you teach as far as, I mean, your fingers, you can only, you can only hold on for so long, right? Like you need to, you need gross motor movements, grabbing their wrists, uh, locking the arms in between or locking their legs, excuse me, their knees in between, uh, your elbow and your body and just gripping, gripping and ripping really at that point. Um, that's typically going to work a whole lot better, uh, than trying to grab onto their, their wrist with your, with your fingers. Hey Jake, what, um, yeah. What are some of the, the challenges you guys are seeing? I'm kind of on Google Maps now just going through your district. Uh, what are the common things you're seeing? Are you seeing bars on windows? Are you seeing, seeing single-room occupancies? Um, it seems like you guys are making a ton of grabs. I'm just curious how, how these places are laid out and uh, why that's becoming an issue. Um, so, so my district is, uh, is very interesting. So we have one of the smaller districts in the city, but we're one of the busiest, and we're right at, we're right at an intersection. And depending on which way you go, you can have varied occupancies. If we pull out of the firehouse and we go one direction, we're talking 700, maybe 600 to 1,000 square foot uh, single floor homes. Um, we go another direction, we're talking about uh, smaller project apartments. Go a third direction, we're talking high rises uh, downtown. And the last direction we can go and we'll have uh, eight and 10,000 square foot single family homes some of which have been converted to uh, multifamily dwellings. But the, uh, the old west end of Toledo uh, historically was, was the, uh, the hoity-toity, the rich industrialists uh, where they were living. So uh, it's not abnormal for us to, in the same, in the same day or in, in, even in the same before lunch, you can go to a fire in a, in a house that's a little bit bigger than a, than a garage or a shed. And then later on that day, you're, walking up to the third floor of a single family home for a bedroom fire. So um, we do see a lot of bars on windows. Um, but even more than that, I mean, most of the, again, most of our buildings are vacant and that we're fighting fires in. A lot of them uh, are boarded up. Uh, certain neighborhoods uh, seem to get boarded up better than others. I mean, there's some parts of the city where you'll go down a street and there'll be 12 vacant houses on the block and they're all wide open except for one. So, um, Definitely bars on the windows. Um, really, we run into, there's uh, just not a lot of smoke detectors. Uh, every firehouse has a cache of smoke detectors, and, uh, and it's publicized. that Hey, you can go to the fire department, any firehouse, and get smoke detectors and put them up in your house, um, and it's all paid for. I mean, we don't charge anybody anything. And even if they're, if they're renters, obviously, that's supposed to be provided by their landlord, but for whatever reason, that typically doesn't happen. So we're like, look, we'll even give you smoke detectors, even though it's your landlord's fault, we're going to give them to you anyway, just so they have smoke detectors. But so many places and so many places don't have smoke detectors. It just absolutely floors me. I don't, I don't understand it. Yeah. Hey, yeah. Go ahead, Grant. No, we, so we were talking a little bit. Um, one video that I show in my class is the Norwich fire. Um, and we talked a little bit about that. And you you want to speak to that? And uh, yeah, so I mean, this probably more so than any uh, any other event in recent memory in Toledo. This has probably driven 
the uh, the search culture in Toledo. So this was, uh, I want to say October or November, probably 2004, 2005. And you might know the dates better than me, Grant, but uh, an apartment fire was put out on uh, Norwich, which is uh, right behind Station 11, kind of on the west, southwest side of Toledo. And uh, uh, mom was mom was at home. Uh, she's there. She had five or six kids. There's a couple cousins or neighbors were also there. And uh, mom left to go to the store. Uh, kids playing with matches lit the place off. And uh, long story short, uh, seven children ended up dying in this house fire. And uh, just really, really affected the department. I mean, uh, I've seen this video a ton of times. But uh, I'll say some of the guys that, that I respect, some of the best firefighters on our job, uh, you still ask them to, to talk about Norwich now, and they'll talk about it, but they don't like it. And I mean, they're still, uh, they're still tore up about just how they couldn't do anything. They got the kids, they pulled them out, and I don't think a single one of them survived. And uh, so that, I think, really has served as a catalyst for, for a, uh, definitely a search culture and uh, an aggressive search culture. Because, uh, again, I mean, some guys that are some of the most respected firefighters in, in Toledo, and they, 15 years later, and they're still, still tore up about it. So that fire, like I said, probably more so than anything else, is, is really driven, driven us to want to wanna search well. All right, so we're going to uh, change lanes just for a second. And uh, for those that don't know or aren't aware, Jake is part of the fire attack study with UL. Um, you know, the controversial or not so controversial, depending on where you stand on things, um, things that are going on in the fire service. Uh, I, I think it does a great benefit. I think if everybody's read the report, there's a lot of good information in there. And I think there's a lot of good stuff going on on both sides. Uh, like anything, there's uh, extremes, you know, different messages from different people, part of the panel. I think Jake uh, does a really good job of staying right in the middle, staying true to the values that the fire service does hold uh, very dear um, Jake, if you could expound a little bit on uh, you know, some of your experiences, some of the stuff that you've gained out of it, some of the stuff that maybe you interpret differently than others do, and uh, just just some, share some experiences on that. All right. Um, so really what kind of prompted me to kind of get involved with UL and um, really fire behavior uh, was ever since our, our line of duty deaths on uh, January 26, 2014, um, I was working that day. It was not at the fire. Um, but I was just like, how, how could this happen? Like what, what happened? Why did it happen? And, and what can I learn otherwise? So that really prompted me to get involved. Um, I applied for this to be on the technical panel. Uh, didn't expect to have a snowball's chance in hell. I ended up getting on and, uh, I've learned a whole lot and it was, it's great experience for sure. I would highly suggest that anybody that can, uh, try to get involved with it. But, um, the, the important part for me uh, of this study was definitely the information on victim survivability. Uh, it's, it's not an exact science. There's, there's not a whole lot of, uh, there's not a whole lot of data out there. Some of the data that's out there uh, that involves lethal doses and lethal concentrations was originally determined using rats in a lab. Um, some of the moisture measurements and the gas concentrations. So it, it's fantastic information, but it's still, it's still evolving, right? It, it's still pretty new. Um, so my, my thing is, I just, like you said, I try to be a voice of reason, um, because I mean, Toledo, we're, we're a pretty urban city. We, we go to a good number of fires, but, uh, 
I mean, yeah, sometimes you'll throw some water through a window. Is it always the best option? No. Um, but I don't think that I, it would be stupid of me to tell anybody how to fight their fires. Uh, cause as much as I'd love to go to a fire down there in Newport news, the reality is I'm probably not going to. So if I'm going to stand here or get on Twitter or something and tell you how you should run your next fire, I just make myself look like an idiot and nothing really gets accomplished. So I'm all, I'm all about taking the information from the study and uh, how can we use this to enhance our operations? Not necessarily looking at it as, oh, I'm going to take this and I'm going to change this and this and this and this. How can we take that information and say, all right, maybe we tweak this a little bit or maybe we tweak that. Uh, one, of the, one of the thoughts that we've kind of uh, enhanced on our department that was actually kind of always the culture um, was when you look at you look at any firefighting textbook, right? And it says, where do you start, where do you start your searches? And it's always closest to the fire and work your way out. Um, and what we found was that if somebody's close to the fire, the engine company's typically finding them. And the search crew, again, typically a squad, maybe an engine if the squad's not there yet. Um, they're gonna, if it's middle of the night, they're going upstairs. I mean, they're going to the targeted areas where people are gonna be. And uh, really that's kind of what the UL study showed us. Again, limited data set. But uh, the people that are close to the fire, chances are they're they are incapacitated with thermal burns that are probably not conducive to life. But if somebody's going to be alive or, or viable, a lot of times they're going to be remote from the fire, probably behind a closed door. Um, so that didn't really change anything, but that was kind of the stuff that kind of affirmed what we were already doing. Um, but again, like, like I said before, my big thing is I, I'm not here to, to tell anybody how to fight their fires. Um, but I know that the, uh, we've definitely implemented some things, uh, from this study in our own operations. Jake, what, um, what have you guys implemented? Was there any kind of kickback or folks not buying into it or saying, Hey man, we've always done it this way. Why do we have to change? What are some of the, what are some of the big things you guys got accomplished and some of the challenges you guys had? Um, I mean, really from this, not a whole lot. Um, the biggest kickback for us would probably be regarding this study. So this study had the three parts. There was um, water mapping, talking about where water goes in a compartment when you're flowing, whether it's interior or exterior streams. Um, the air entrainment part, and then also the, the fire attack, the live fire part that involved the victim data. And so the one thing that that was a change for us is everybody – just like everywhere, I'm, I'm sure was taught to not put water on smoke. And that was still very prevalent with a lot of our senior guys. A lot of the younger guys have been taught, hey, look, if, if you're hot, you got to flow water, you got to cool the environment down. And so that's one thing that I would say we still kind of struggle with is uh, people not wanting to flow water until they, they get to the seat of the fire. And so the last couple of academy classes that I've helped teach uh, extinguishment and fire attack for, we've really been stressing this. We, we teach them all modern fire behavior and and explain why the fires are different than, than 20 or 50 years ago. And so one of the problems that we had was rookies were going out and they're catching a fire, they're on the line and it's pretty warm and they're flowing and moving towards the seat of the fire. They're flowing in the hallway and then shutting the line down and, and making their way to the fire room. And uh, some of the old guys were, oh, what are you, not, not, not that you're wasting water, but they're like, oh, you're, you're flowing water unnecessarily. You're gonna, you're causing more water damage, whatever. And, and so one of the things we told people was, hey, first of all, if it's vacant or not, who cares about water damage? I mean, you can always dry something out. You can't unburn it. I've never seen a couch float out the front door, right? And uh, 
And not to mention that uh, even if it is an occupied house, the insurance company is going to gut everything anyway. So what are you saving by not flowing water? And so once we did a little bit more education for line crews, that problem hasn't been completely resolved, but it's, it's kind of gone away uh, for the most part. Uh, and it was just basically just a difference in teaching, teaching methods and a different information that new guys were getting as opposed to older guys. Um, and then, so when transitional tech first came out for us as, as a term, right? I mean, I'm sure all of our departments have at one point or another had to flow water from the outside just so you can move inside and you didn't call it anything. You just did it. Um, but once they kind of coined the term, there was a lot of pushback and, uh, there were some, some officers that, that anytime they saw fire coming out of a window, they wanted to transition it just, Oh, I think this is what we're supposed to do right now. Um, and so that luckily didn't last very long. Um, and there were some crews that were, that were vehemently against it, uh, at any time, uh, some very good experienced inner city crews. And, uh, so shortly after after this whole thing and this one crew, very opinionated, very senior on the job. Uh, they ended up having a first two apartment fire. Uh, it's a four story ordinary construction. Uh, it's a fire trap. I mean, this place is, it's uh, not sprinklered. It's they've had bad fires there before. And uh, so they get there and there's fire showing from uh, the Bravo Charlie corner. It's probably, this building's probably uh, 80 by 200. It's, it's a pretty large structure. And uh, they know it's going to be a tough stretch on the inside. There's no standpipes. And they know that if this apartment door is open, it's going to be bad for everybody. So uh, this group that was vehemently against ever putting any water from the outside stretched a line, gave this fire a quick shot just to knock it down, buy themselves some time to do a search and get a line to the inside. And it worked really well for them. And after that, they're kind of like, all right, yeah, it doesn't always have to be, oh, we're, we're always going to stand outside and hit it from the bushes. Um, and that kind of real world experience, I guess, with it kind of changed some minds that look, sometimes it might be the best option, but usually the best option is getting inside as quickly as you can. Yeah, I think some of the kitchen table conversations can get pretty, uh, pretty angry when all that stuff came out. But I think folks need to realize it wasn't totally black and white. It wasn't, hey, you must do this. Um, we unfortunately had some experiences at, at our place that was you know, we did an in-service training and it was just a, just a piece of knowledge, but it was all of a sudden we must do it this way every time. Well, pump the brakes here. Let's, let's take a peek at this building uh, before we automatically assume we got to go inside or outside. You know, you got to kind of see what happens and um, what you, what you need to do from there. Not always just shoot water from the outside, but unfortunately I imagine you guys probably had the same kitchen table conversations uh, we did. Um, Absolutely. Um, so looking at squad five fire training, I see you do a bunch of technical rescue stuff. Um, also got your hands in a lot of, uh, writ stuff. Did you ever get a chance to look at the, the Mayday project that came out a few years back? Yeah. Uh, project Mayday is fantastic. Um, that, uh, the information from that, uh, I use all the time when it comes to, uh, to discussing writ and Mayday operations and, and really that combined with what we learned in Toledo from our line of duty desks has really driven uh, Toledo to change our writ procedures. And then also that's kind of what pushed me into, into uh, teaching writ was uh, the lessons that we learned in Toledo that we thought were going to be different from everybody else's. And then we realized that they're pretty damn similar. So Project Mayday, Chief Abbott does a fantastic job of gathering that data and putting it out in a, in a format that 
the line firefighter can understand, right? Because the UL report is 600 and some pages. The fire service summaries, I don't know, 60 or 70. But a lot of guys aren't reading that, right? I mean, even though it's the fire service summary, they want snippets. They're going to read an article about the the they're going to read an article about the study. They're not going to read the whole study. And so I think that leaves a lot of room for misinformation to be spread out there because no matter who writes an article, good, bad, kind of middle of the road, there's always some kind of, not necessarily a twist, but there's, there's some influence there for whoever the writer is. And if you just read the information as it's presented, you can form your own opinions. And uh, so Project Made, I think, is fantastic because it is just matter of fact. It's written for firefighters. It's not hard to read. And uh, a lot of the information, I think, kind of speaks for itself with that. And what we found is that a lot of that information correlates very closely to, to what we're experiencing in Toledo. I know uh, I was kind of caught off guard with some of that information in that Project Made. Um something like 70% of all Maydays occur between 9 p.m. and 6 a.m. Um, yeah. Almost 50 are operating above the fire. And then what, what kind of threw me off, and I know there's been a lot of talk about this lately, and I know is, I know um, you and Grant talk Mayday stuff uh, and teach that stuff. Uh, there's been a pushback against RIT, I think, at least in hushed circles in, in some of the places I've been, uh, because the numbers show that, only 11% of firefighter rescues are, th- are through RIT. And a lot of guys were talking down on RIT or saying we need to pull back and stuff like that. And then uh, what, last week there was a fire where two guys uh, were grabbed by the RIT team. And uh, I- I'm still a proponent of, 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 you know, people standing out in the front yard. I realize that a lot of it's going to take guys operating in the building. Um, but I wanted to know your thoughts on this kind of pushback against RIT now that these numbers are out saying that, you know, 21% is self-rescue, 31% is from the crew of the Mayday firefighter, and then uh, 37% are saved by another working crew inside. Um, what would you say to the guys that say that RIT needs to be, you know, phased out or, you know, toned down a little bit? Well, not, not trying to be non-confrontational, but I don't, I don't think they're wrong, but I don't think they're completely right either. So what we've, uh, what we've done is, I mean, our entire department's trained in RIT. Um, there are, uh, you get a, you get three or four days of RIT training, uh, in the Academy. And then, um, so after our, after our line of duty deaths, um, they ran the entire department through drills in the, the two following summers after that. So two different drills, um, that were full speed RIT scenarios, um, in the afternoon, but in the morning were kind of like hands-on one-on-one skill sessions to refresh some of the, uh, the RIT techniques. And, uh, what we found was, like you said, most of the time it's people on the interior that are making contact with that down firefighter first. So you need to, if you're a chief listening to this or somebody that can push for some change, you need to empower your people to, to have the flexibility to, to make a difference on the inside. So I know in Toledo, if, if there's two or three guys on the inside, one guy's got a line, somebody falls through a hole in the floor, or you hear a mayday and you think you're close by, they're going to leave one guy on the line and the other guys are going to go try to see what they can do. Um, that's probably, it's not necessarily spelled out in any policy that we advocate leaving one guy on the line by himself, but you should probably know what you're doing if you're going to have that nozzle in your hand. And those other guys, they might not be able to completely make the rescue, but they've at least made contact with the down firefighter. They located where they are. So I think that a, everybody needs, needs to have a good foundation in not only RIT skills, but also self-survival skills, because you're not going to be able to help anybody else if you can't help yourself. I mean, look at uh, the Phoenix study from Brett Tarver, where they found 
that one in every five uh, firefighters experienced a mayday during the the uh, the drills that they did after Brett Tarver died in the Southwest supermarket, and um, that that really went a long way for us looking at the Phoenix study and then looking at Asheville, North Carolina after Captain Jeff Bowen died in the office building. Um, Asheville did has a fantastic study out on their RIT operations and what they found, how crews did better or worse, depending on their level of training and such. And so we, in Toledo, I can say before our, our line of duty desk, we thought, ah, you know what, that was a grocery store, that was an office building. We mostly go to house fires. It's not, it's not really a big thing. Well, as we started to evaluate our, uh, our line of duty desk and some of the timings and some of the information, we found that it was far more similar than we would have ever thought. And so, I'm I'm definitely a proponent of having RIT at every working fire, but they need to be they need to be flexible and they need to be focused for rapid response. So when we teach RIT, we're like, look, don't worry about the Stokes basket, don't worry about having a tarp full of crap out in the front yard. It it doesn't matter. That it's useless. We need to get contact to this down firefighter as fast as we can. Cause what we do when we teach is we characterize simple and complex Mayday events. So your simple event would be uh, that simple writ scenario is typically going to be in a in a residential dwelling. Maybe it's lower low low on air. You're lost. Maybe you fell through a floor. Uh, you're cut off by fire. Maybe the engine lost pressure. Um, and then our complex ones are a little bit more complicated. So there's a collapse. Um, really, any mayday in a larger structure, commercial, industrial, or even large residential. Those are typically the complex ones. But the vast majority of the maydays that we're seeing. And if you look at Project Mayday, are what we would characterize as simple Mayday events. And for those, typically the interior crews are already going to be starting to affect a rescue, and RIT just comes in and supplements or or does whatever is needed. So we don't need a Stokes basket full of crap sitting out in the front yard. So what we did in Toledo, they put out a paper, and, and it said there's only five tools you need to establish RIT. And so we call those the big five. And for us, that would be the, uh, the RIT pack our thermal imaging camera, rope, irons, and a hose line. And the hose line kind of has an asterisk by it because you're not always going to need that hose line. If, if it's, there's no thermal threat, there's no, there's no fire event, the hostile fire event that's uh, impeding rescue or causing the mayday, we can leave that hose line outside, but we like to have a dedicated hose line for RIT. And so what we'll do is, again, rather than having four people standing out in the front yard like shepherds with their hooks in their hand, we're, we're more about that, that rapid response and being flexible. So typically what we'll do is we'll split our RIT crew. Um, we talk about uh, four by one, one by four, two by two. And basically it's just different ways to, to position your people. So if yet we have, we have four people, four person RIT crews. So if all people are, uh, are standing out in the front yard, that's what we'd call our one by four. So you got four guys standing in one spot. Typically what we'll do is either a two by two, or that four by one, which for us is you'll either have one person on each corner of that structure, or you'll have it split two and two um, on opposite corners, which is probably the most prevalent way that we do it. And uh, again, this this works well for for dwelling fires or for maybe smaller smaller commercial buildings. But if you're talking a larger apartment building or a larger commercial structure, uh, splitting the crew typically isn't as uh, useful and isn't very effective. But what we found is by splitting that crew, they can they can make contact with that down firefighter faster. So if you're in the rear and somebody calls a mayday on the second floor and you got a ladder there, boom, climb up the ladder, take the window if it's not out already, get inside and, and 
get to that guy as fast as you can. You don't always have to go meet up in the front yard and devise a game plan. We, we just want people getting in, the, in there as quick as possible. So again, for us, we're going to mostly house fires. We know that people on the inside are going to make contact with this down firefighter. So we're just there to supplement. So we don't need to be bringing in chainsaws and sawzalls and bottle jacks and airbags. If we need that stuff, we'll call for it. But the vast majority of our maydays being those simple evolutions, we can handle with just those big five tools that we talked about. Question on uh, making, making rapid contact. We do something similar. Uh, and we've got an IRIT that's going to go inside make contact and it's just irons and, and air and, and kind of assess what we got. Are we going to need additional units? Once that initial unit goes in, are you backfilling? Are they getting, are you getting additional units on the mayday? Uh, like a mayday alarm or anything like that? Or yeah, how, and, what's that look like? Yeah. Yeah. We're getting a mayday alarm and it's, and it's a full second alarm compliment. So you're getting another four engines, another truck, another squad, um, chief, uh, ambulances and such. Um, and so that's, again, one of the similarities that we found that, that we thought wouldn't apply to us in Toledo. Oh, we go to house fires. Well, in Phoenix, they found it's, it's going to take 12 or 15 guys to, to rescue one down firefighter. Asheville found the same thing, 12 or 15 guys to rescue one down firefighter. Like, those were very different from what we, we go to. We didn't think that was going to apply to us. And, uh, I mean, I hate to admit it, but, yeah, we were cocky. We didn't think, ah, it's not going to take that many for us. Well, on Magnolia Street, we assigned 11 firefighters from three different units to find two guys and it, it took all 11 to come to not only find them but to complete that rescue so that was that was very humbling for us was that oh you know what this building wasn't that big and it still took 11 guys it still was right in line with what phoenix and with what Asheville told us and uh for whatever reason we thought that that it wasn't going to apply to us now this building that uh Jamie Dickman and Steve Machinsky lost their lives in. They're on the second floor of this building. And the second floor of this place was uh, about 30 feet by 18 feet. It wasn't real big, but uh, Collier's Mansion conditions, there's a lot of clutter up there. And uh, it, for us, that was definitely an eye opener that said, all right, you know what? We need to, we need to reevaluate the way that we're doing RIT. Four people aren't going to fix this problem. And if you think that everybody's going to continue on with their own operations, like most SOPs say, it's not true. Guys on the inside are, are going to go, regardless of whether they're supposed to or not, they're going to go and try to make a rescue, try to try to get that down firefighter before Red even gets in there. So we talk in the beginning about getting in there for them and search is priority. And then we switched gears and we said, Rit is important. How do you strike a balance? And, and I know the argument that I've heard is, uh, if you're not a proponent of writ early, you're not for the guys. And, and the Project Mayday study uh, kind of de debunks that. Um, so where does writ fall in your thing? And do you agree it's important to get guys in there uh, for backup line and for search? Because you are, are there for the guys. I, I would wholeheartedly agree with that. So in Toledo, we used to have the only, we don't have a formal procedure on going to structure fires. We have a couple procedures that affect it. We have a writ one. We have, I mean, a mandatory mask policy, accountability, but we don't have a procedure that says the first engine is going to do this every time, second, third, fourth, do this. The only predetermined assignment we had for structure fires was that the third new engine in the running order was going to be writ. And so what we've done since is we've actually changed that to the fourth do because we figure the more crews we can put inside to get the fire under control and affect the search, 
the less our chances are of having a mayday in the first place. So we moved RIT from the third do engine to the fourth do engine, and that seemed to work pretty well for us um, because, at least in my experience, when, when we find the fire, things typically go pretty well. But when the fire finds you, we have problems. So the faster we can get that backup line in there to, to back up that initial attack line and maybe find some more fire, maybe it's in the basement, they went above it, whatever the case is, that seems to be preventing maydays in itself. Um, but just last week, for example, we had a fatal fire, and at this fatal fire, uh, one of the guys from Engine 17 ended up falling through a hole in the floor, got, got banged up pretty good, uh, going to be off work for a while. But he began to self-rescue, and then the other crews inside just yanked him up through the hole and drug him outside to the, uh, to the life squad. So the fact that there was enough people inside to both deal with the fire, they ended up finding a victim at this fire, and rescue him. I mean, Rit wasn't on scene yet. Rit wasn't established yet. But by packing the house with people early, that's worked out for us on multiple occasions. Hey, Jake, what what particularly has changed since I know you said that the four two engines now you're your red engine company. But since Magnolia Street, are you guys and I, and I read the report the other day, and are you guys a little more active in terms of your rit? Are you guys uh, throwing ladders? Are you trying to take some of the bars off these windows? Um, what is your guys' role is if you're RIT? Yes. Yeah, so by our policy, uh, RIT has to, has to create at least one means of egress. So typically that's, that's obviously a ladder to an upper floor. Um, if it's one story, they're forcing a rear door or something like that. Um, definitely things have gotten more proactive since then to where, I mean, we were always cutting window bars or pulling plywood if we had to. But uh, now, obviously, trying to throw more ladders. Um, Toledo is a very engine engine culture department, just because they've cut our truck companies so so much. Uh, Thirty five years ago, there was like twenty some engines and ten trucks and five rescue squads in the city, and now we're only down to three trucks. Um, and they're three person trucks, and typically they're going to the roof to cut a hole. So that engine company that's going to be assigned to RIT is is trying to pull what ladders they can and do their th RIT three sixty and and uh, deal with any bars or any other problems that they have. Um, but again, considering that RIT is the fourth engine, a lot of times as a squad driver, like I said, a lot of times we'll come up and we'll, be, we'll start cutting bars while our crew's inside because we look at Project Mayday, most, of the, most Maydays are occurring to that first arriving crew and they're typically within the first 10 minutes of getting there. So in that time, even though there's a lot of people that we just threw inside the house, we might not have... Uh, we might not have RIT on scene yet, let alone established. So for us, that was something that was pretty important was, you know what, if you're the squad driver, you're already behind the eight ball, just grab the, grab the saw, run up and cut bars if you need to. If you don't, just dump the saw on the front porch and, and head right in. So that was, that was one thing. So one of the biggest things that when I talked about splitting RIT, that was nothing that we had ever done at any time. It wasn't proceduralized. No one had ever talked about it. But on, on, uh, on Magnolia Street, the officer, Engine 17, really good, experienced inner city guy his whole career. Um, they pulled up, they were assigned RIT, and it, it's, it's just a nasty looking fire to start with, but it's a really weird building. So he made the call that he was going to split RIT. Him and, the rook, him and the newest guy were going to stay in the front corner and uh, send his senior man and the other guy around the back to kind of the Charlie Delta corner. And this had, again, never been discussed, never been implemented, never been trained, never been proceduralized. This was just this officer thinking on the fly, hey, look, this is a weird building. 
let's split up. So if something happens, we can get there quickly. And it, it, it worked. I mean, get, they, we, we put guys inside the structure very fast. So that's kind of where that splitting writ concept came for us. And, um, and, and it's worked really well for us as far as supplementing the guys inside that are probably already making contact with the firefighter. Yeah, I read the when I read the report, I saw the you know kind of the aerial view, and it had um, you know two guys on the I think the AB corner and mm-hmm. the, the other two on the CD, and I was like, wow, that couldn't work out any better. That was a that was a smart move, um, you know, on their part. Has anything changed? And I'm just looking over some of the recommendations, and I understand that um, you know some people can have different opinions on the recommendations. Um, and it was talking about having the charge hose line. I believe, and you can speak to it better than I, but reading the report, uh, they went in there, uh, one of the companies did with an uncharged line. You know, they're trying to find it. I know it was a cut-up type of place. Have you guys changed based on, you know, that recommendation or any other recommendations? Uh, yeah, so um, Engine 3, when they got there, they did. They took an uncharged line up a ladder uh, on side alpha there through the window, um, called for water eventually. Um, so that has changed again. This is, this is definitely stuff that chief Benedum can talk to, um, if you guys have him on next month, but, um, since then, yes, it's, it's been proceduralized that if it's a working fire, you're going to have a charge hose line, um, when you make entry, um, to a single family or, or something similar to this. So that's definitely changed. I mean, some of the other recommendations as far as uh, an assigned safety officer, some of those things have definitely changed. Um, but again, that's that's stuff that Chief Benedum can definitely allude to. He uh, he ran our investigative team uh, for the department and uh, speaks on on this event uh, all across the country. I mean, he's been in Texas, he's been at FDIC, he was just in New England this past week, so uh, he can definitely answer those questions a little bit better and more definitively than I can. Yeah, we talked about it. We uh, hope we can get him on next month, as it'll be the anniversary of 528 Magnolia. Uh, as, as we start to wrap up. You, you, you teach RIT. Um, is there anything different that's going on in the teaching world with as far as firefighter drags? We try to keep them simple, and the air pack tends to be a main component of removing a victim um, that, that maybe didn't mesh with, with what was found in, in, at Magnolia or yeah, anything so, you've done different. So I, I definitely think we need to, you need to teach people to use that uh, – to use that it's definitely a valid option and most times it's probably going to work um drag straps are in just about everybody's coat now uh also a great tool but uh what they found at magnolia street was uh these conditions were so bad on the second floor when uh when uh the guys from squad seven made contact with one of the guys uh they finally found him he was laying face down they found his bottle so typically what do you do if you find a guy who's unconscious with a bottle grab them, you flip them over with it. Well, they went to pull them and flip them over and the entire SCBA harness came off in their hands. The straps had burned through, nothing was connected. So there goes point A. And at that point, they literally, they just, they muscled them out as best as they could. Um, and so that's why I think we're definitely doing people a disservice if all you teach is, hey, just grab onto the SCBA, convert the SCBA to a harness. Um, that's something that, that kind of like we said before about necessarily overcomplicating or giving people too many options. Um, these guys that were in there were 
all the guys assigned to Rit and, and Fine and Jamie and Steve were all very experienced firefighters. I think there was one rookie out of those 10 or 11 guys. The rest of the guys had 15 to 25 years in the inner city. Fantastic firefighters. And they said, look, we didn't think about converting the harness. We didn't think about anything. We knew it was bad. We knew this place wasn't huge. We literally just grabbed them and ripped them out of there. So that goes back to, A, having a plan before something happens, but also just being realistic. I mean, if it's going to take us 20 or 30 seconds to convert a harness, but we can have this guy out in 45 seconds, I'm going to probably err on the side of just getting this guy out of whatever conditions he's in. And so we tell people that all the time. You're typically never more than, what, 15 or 20 feet from a window in, a, in an average house. And I know you talk about the same thing for search grant. And for us, it, it's no different. If you can take this guy and uh, you think it's easier to, to pull him into a room and isolate it and rip his face piece off and flop his upper body out of the window while you're waiting for a ladder, you've already got him some fresh air. He's out of that, he's out of that environment. Once the ladder gets there, you can, you can roll him down uh, as you need. And uh, that's like using, using a, a, a portable ladder as a high directional to get somebody out of an upper floor window. It's a great technique, but what we found when we were doing drills with guys is even guys that are rope rescue guys that are, that are really good squared away tech rescue guys, they're like, we're not remembering this stuff at three in the morning. So let's come up with a different plan A, B, and C. And then this can be plan D if we absolutely have no other options. Well, very cool. You guys got anything else? Uh, man, this has been an awesome, awesome uh, show. Wait, wait. Yeah, I think we covered way more than I thought we'd be able to in this amount of time. No, no I, I appreciate it, Jake. Uh, thanks for the knowledge. Thanks for the insight. Thanks for sharing your thoughts. Uh, Magnolia, we'll, we look forward to having the chief on. Um, it, was, it was a pretty good eye-opening report. Um, definitely condolences uh, for the brothers that we did lose a few years ago. Um, thanks for your time. Thanks for pushing it forward, man, doing the right things for the fire service. So we definitely appreciate it. If, uh, if people want to get a hold of you or make contact with you, whether it's on search or RIT or your training company or UL, what, uh, what's the best way to do that? Uh, I mean, you can look me up on Facebook, just Jake Hoffman. I'm a pretty suave looking guy in a suit in my profile picture. And uh, you can send me an email. Uh, my email is backsteprescue at gmail.com. And uh, yeah, I'd be glad to help anybody however I can uh, in any way possible. So thanks guys for having me on. Like I said, I really appreciate it and uh, honored to be a part of the podcast. I've been listening. Uh, the first couple episodes were great. Definitely honored to be, uh, be a part of this. Don't uh, don't forget that he's on Twitter too. He's a pretty good uh, Twitter follow. He's uh, he's the salty looking fireman in the, uh, the picture. So yeah. Uh, TFD underscore Leroy L E E R O Y. It's kind of a, stupid nickname that stuck for a while and i made my twitter handle and now i probably wish i did something else now you're twitter famous with a silly handle so it's <laughs> so well thanks jake we appreciate you uh coming on and and, and uh, dropping all sorts of knowledge i think a lot of people are going to get a lot out of uh what you talked about and uh, we look forward to talking to the chief about the uh the line of duty deaths um as we kind of wrap this up, we want to keep everybody in, uh, in Worcester in our, our thoughts or Worcester, however you want to say it, in our thoughts and prayers. Uh, they lost a guy a couple of days ago. December is a, a very tough month for those guys. Um, so uh, just think about those guys in this tough time. And thanks again, everybody, for listening to the Journeyman Fire podcast. We'll, uh, we'll talk to you next time.